listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks to everyone joining us for episode 310. A lot of episodes. I know. How you doing? I'm all right. It's just, it's hot. It's really, really hot. It's, it is really, really hot. So, I, I almost wish I was in Calgary again. <laughs> Weather there was gorgeous. Oh, it was. It was oh, the- it was 80 degrees there, and they were like, heat advisory, and I'm like, hold my beer. <laughs> they really did have a heat advisory, and it really was 80 degrees Fahrenheit there. But we had a great time. We're going to do that uh, probably every quarter. Uh, met some good people. Got a bunch of listeners up there. Um, we oversold. We did oversold, yeah. Um, unfortunately, my marketing people, to make it easier for our Canadian friends, uh, had Eventbrite set up in Canadian dollars. Oh. And now I can't transfer the money to our bank so we can write the check to charity. Oh, no. But I'll give Eventbrite shout out to show. They're going to make an exception with us, and they're working with me to, to have an intermediary. So lesson oh, okay. learned. It was our fault. We messed up. We just didn't know. Uh, speaking of knowing, uh, we got a review, which, by the way, if you want to leave a review, there's a link in the show notes. makes it ridiculously easy. If you want to try to memorize it, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. You want to read the review? No, because I might be reading everything else. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's from HK Landry, and HK has written in before. Yeah. Uh, you can't confuse me. I know when you miss a podcast. Well, HK, so, <laughs> so do we. <laughs> I look forward to every week. Yours is the only podcast I listen to that links to the news behind the podcast. Very interesting to find more on the subject. Great work, guys. Thank you, HK. Yay. And for this, that five stars. And for the five stars. Um, which, by the way, um, we're going to get into this a little bit later. I'll remind everybody. But uh, HK left this on the comments section of our Oil & Gas This Week podcast. So not OGG and Oil & Gas This Week. And we also had some people ask some questions. And people, because of some technology issues, we don't get notified when you leave us a comment on the Oil & Gas This Week comment section of the website. Yeah. We get notified for everything else. So if you're trying to get us a question for First Friday Q&A or leave us a review, just do it where you're supposed to do it. Um, and if you do do it on the website for Oil & Gas This Week, um, and what I'm talking about is literally you would be listening to the podcast on your desktop from oilandgasthisweek.com on that actual page at the bottom of the page where you listen to podcasts is a place to comment. If you're filling that out, we will eventually get to it. It just will take a while. Um, or just, maybe not. Maybe we'll never get to yeah. it. I don't know. So, But instead of doing that, just leave reviews in iTunes. We gave you the link for that. Um, and then for asking a question, go to where it says ask a question on First Friday Q&A. Yeah. Speak- well, now that we've cleared that up, it's First Friday Q&A. Um, and of course, starting off, as always, with Ludwig. Uh, to be clear about corn, I think it is more important to provide food security to the world. I'm just shocked that it's being used for petrol. Uh, I'm told it makes no sense from engine performance, but hey, how many people in the world are hungry? Let's solve that. Let's just use common sense energy. A perfect example of renewables is being used properly. The Blind Institute of South Netherlands is in grave between Lynn School and Blind Housing Facility is a fast-moving river. They are building a small plant to power the Blind Institute with water. The rivers there called Diram. I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, when I was in Cape Verde, I was shocked. No solar panels, bloody Africa, bloody a lot of sun. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Ludwig, um, you need to be a little bit careful with your punctuations, but I know exactly what you're asking. So a couple things, more important to provide food to the world than, than ethanol for, for fuel. Yes. Unfortunately, even in 2023, there's over 800 million people in this world that don't get enough to eat. Yeah. And I would much rather take the U S corn instead of turn it to ethanol, uh, give it to the people so they can actually feed themselves and their families. So agree with you on that. And you're right. Common sense. Um, all energy uh, has places where it makes a great fit and where it doesn't make a great fit. No different than than renewables. Um, uh, you sound like you described a perfect fit for where there's a fast-moving river. They can put a dam. Uh, they can use that dam to drive uh, turbines to make electricity for the 
the blind school that is perfect. And you're also right, wherever in Africa, if there was a lot of sun and no solar panels, um, you would think that would be a good place for, for solar panels as yeah. well. So the, our energy mix is is always dependent on the, the geography and geology. If you look at countries like Norway, which are one of the few countries that are run on pure renewable, it's because they have a couple of things that no other countries have. Number one, they're incredibly small, <laughs> as far as a country, I mean, incredibly small. They have geothermal, which is very rare. They have geothermal, high-temp geothermal, so they can make electricity from that. And they have tons and tons of hydro because they have all the fords and the mountains and all the rivers, right? So they have the right natural environment for both geothermal and for hydro. So, of course, they're 100% renewable. Other parts of the world aren't so lucky. So, as always, thanks for writing in, Lufric. Uh, okay, so next one is from Jesse Chrisup, uh, service company president, JTC Directional Enterprises. What's the best route to find an intermediary Ooh, for funding a startup oil and gas acquisition company? So uh, just because I happen to be involved in several oil and gas startups, I got to answer for you. The old days, you did the dog and pony show where you'd round up a group of investors, make contact with them, put together a, a pitch deck, try to get in front of them and pitch your company to the point they had an interest and they'd talk to you. And that's still going on. Actually, uh, check out Rugged Edge. It's one of the companies I have an um, equity stake in that we're in that phase right now. And yes, that's a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> but um, there's now better ways to do it. So go to oilandgasinvestors.com, go to PetroFunders, go to DealStream. These are online aggregates where they find comp- they find people that want to invest money in oil and gas businesses, and then they p- match them up with companies that need funding, and they take a small percentage. So, Jesse, there you go. There's some easy ways for you to find at scale companies that want to invest in your startup now. Your startup has to be viable. Just because you find the company doesn't mean they're automatically going to invest money. But good luck to you, Jesse. I know that part of the process is is gruesome. Been through it myself a couple of times. Um, but like I said, there's technology solutions out there to make it easier. Hope that helps. Okay. Next one is from Alexandra, legal intern at British American Tobacco. Hi, Paige. Hi, Mark. Love your show. I recently graduate, graduated from law school in England, and I'm looking to work in the oil and gas sector. I don't have any experience in the oil and gas industry, and I'm looking for opportunities in London, uh, in London to join an in-house legal team in the industry. Do you have any tips on finding entry-level jobs in the industry in the UK? Could you recommend any companies to apply at? Thank you. So, um, first thing I do would be, I would... Um, do a little bit of research online on which legal firms in the UK the large oil and gas companies use themselves. They all have in, in, in-house in counsel. Um, and in each country, they all they tend to have in-house counsel because each country has different rules and you need an attorney that right. understands those different rules and regulations. However, they also, when they get in trouble or when their in-house counsel team gets um, more work they can handle, they outsource this. And so the first thing I do is would do some research and see um, who BP and who Shell and everybody else uses to outsource their legal uh, work in the UK. And then I would reach out uh, to those companies and offer to do an internship with them. Uh, and once again, you have to do the normal process of seeing if they have internships, uh, trying to get to know the people that work there, which is a networking thing. Um, if, if, if you can't get success right away, figure out what groups and organizations these legal companies are, um, are associated with that go volunteer and work for those associations so you get to know the people. As far as recommending the companies to apply for, you think I'm crazy, um, Lloyds of London. They do so much underwriting of huge projects in the oil and gas industry. They have a huge oil and gas practice, and they're always looking for help. So even though they're an insurance company and not a, a, a legal company, they need a lot of help. And so that would be probably the first place I would look at in the U.K. is Lloyd's of London. Get some experience there. You can go anywhere you want. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, Scott Dennis writes in and says, love you guys and listen every week. Growing up in L.A. during the 70s, we often could not play outside because of pollution. This doesn't happen today, so I'm wondering what major developments over the last 30 years has led to a cleaner hydrocarbon. So, Scott, which I believe, I know you've written before, Scott, so thank you. I I like people that write in often. Um, So, the major thing that happened was the Clean Air Act of the 1970s. Um, Before that, in this country, and younger people would think I'm making this up, go back and YouTube it, you'll see. The pollution was so bad in this country that rivers were catching on fire. Literally, the river itself was catching on fire. Dead animals, garbage, raw sewage being dumped in the oceans. 
a lot of chemicals being released that didn't break down. Uh, think of DDT, Agent Orange. Uh, you can still detect those chemicals today, which, by the way, the herbicides and pesticides that we use today are intentionally designed to break down under sunlight so they don't stay around forever, which is awesome. And so our air and water pollution has gotten better every year since the late 70s, and, and it's, it's amazing how clean our environment is now. You wouldn't know that by listening to the media, but the Clean Air Act, which is was enacted, I believe, by President Nixon, um, and yes, I am that old. I was like a little kid, but I do remember him. Um, that's what started all this uh, and cleanup. And you're right. The pollution was so bad. The nitrous oxide, the carbon monoxide, the particulates in the air. It was actually so bad that if you remember, Scott, back then, a lot of the world's leaders, political leaders, and all of the climate scientists at that time, or the majority of the climate scientists, and a lot of other academics thought that the particulates in the air that was released by burning hydrocarbons um, that was causing the pollution, causing the smog, uh, was actually reflecting sunlight back into outer space, and it was going to speed up head, us head into the next ice age. That's how bad it was. Obviously, we didn't head the next ice age. It does make you wonder about this current group that's saying burning hydrocarbons is making the world heat up. Um, was it true when you thought we're heading to ice age? Um, we'll leave the rest of this for the balance point. But anyway, Scott, so that's what happened is that we had the Clean Air Act, which forced um, things like electrical generation plants to have cleaner exhaust. They had to scrub their, their, their emissions from the coal-fired power plants. Eventually moved to natural gas and nuclear and other ways to generate electricity. Um, automobiles have gotten so much cleaner because of technology. It used to be that your uh, there was no catalytic converter. There was no lean burn technology. There was no computer adjusting the air-fuel ratio. So um, our automobiles were horrible at polluting, and, and they're not there at all. If you listen to me at any time, you know that told you that our passenger cars only release about 1% of the pollutants in the air now, so they're almost uh, indetectable. So the Clean Air Act is what happened to cause it all to start being cleaned up by law, by federal law. And the, from a practical point of view, the oil and gas industry worked really close with electrical generation companies, with automobile manufacturers to make sure the emissions from those uh, <coughs> were cleaner and cleaner every year. Okie doke. All right. Um, Sean writes in and says, hey, Mark and Paige, I am a college student studying petroleum engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. I recently came across your podcast and am, am loving it. Uh, it also allows me to stay up to date with the latest news, even when I'm drowning in my schoolwork, which is every day. As an aspiring petroleum engineer, what are some of the things I can do right now to forward my career? Just stay alive, Sean. <laughs> Just survive. <laughs> Just survive. There is a going to be such a huge demand for petroleum engineers that as long as you're breathing and can get to work, you're going to get a high-paying job out of school. Um, if you listen to the show for any length of time, I've always recommend, especially for uh, petroleum engineers, to, to study something that helps you that is also has its own merits in the job world, stuff like big data analytics. I still recommend that. Although it's gotten to the point now in 2023 that you're already studying big data analytics. You're already studying AI. You're probably already using chat GPT to help you with some of your papers. Um, so maybe another thing to look at is, is if you can find something else that coincides with petroleum engineers that maybe your peers aren't also studying like big data analytics. So look at things like organic chemistry, right? Look at, um, um, things like um, advanced uh, oil recovery, right? Study some of that stuff which goes perfectly with petroleum engineers, and that will differentiate you with your other petroleum engineer graduates that have been doing the big data analytics stuff I've been talking about for a decade. Um, but, Sean, you're not going to have a problem getting a job. It's it's Petroleum engineers are, are, are getting ready to have a boom. Uh, you're going to get a great job, and you're going to end up with five or six offers, standing offers in your back pocket all the time. So you're you're in a really good place. Okay, Patricia Sanchez, uh, Secretariat at International Trade Administration. Hey guys, love your show. Look forward to listening every week. I have two questions. Paige, can you explain the difference between BLM, FERC, EPA, DAY, and Bessie? And then Mark, what do you think Pemex's future will be doing in the U.S.? You ready for this, Mark? Yep. <laughs> so FERC is the Federal Energy Regula uh, Regulatory Commission, and they regulate interstate transmission of electricity, natural gas, oil, hydropower uh, projects, and natural gas terminals. EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, sponsors and conducts research and develops the and enforces environmental regulations. BLM, Bureau of Land, Manage uh, Land Management Regulatory, regulates onshore uh, 
activity, basically mineral development and energy production on public lands. Uh, Bessie is the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, which regulates offshore activities and provides uh, the oversight uh, and enforcement to promote safety and protect the environment. This is a newer bureau, and it was originally a part of the Mineral Management Service and was reorganized in 2010 after the Macondo incident. Um, and that got moved into three different agencies, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. They handle uh, offshore leasing, obviously Bessie, uh, and the Office of Natural Resources Revenue, and they, they handle royalties and revenue audits and asset management kind of stuff. DOI is the Department of the Interior which manages public lands and minerals, national parks, and wildlife refuges. Uh, additionally, they are responsible for end endangered species conservation and other uh, environmental con uh, conservation uh, efforts. Bessie and BLM are under DOI. So hope so that clears Patricia, that up. will be a test on on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a secretary of the International Trade Administration. She's asked about PEMEX. Secretariat means something different in Spanish that does in English. Um, so I got a feeling, Patricia, you're you're high ranking somewhere. Um, would not be surprised if you have something to do with Pemex. Uh, what would the what would the Pemex future be doing as far as business in the U.S.? You know that depends. Um, as you know, the Latino market, especially the Mexican market, is extremely brand loyal. And so, right here in Houston, we have several Pemex gas stations and first and second generation um, Mexicans that uh, have moved to Texas routinely drive out of their way to go buy fuel from that uh, from the Pemex gas stations because they have a loyalty to the brand, which I think is a beautiful thing. I don't want to let them know that it's actually, the gasoline is actually coming from the closest refinery, which is <laughs> refinery. It doesn't make any sense to come from a Pemex refinery. Pemex also just uh, in the last couple of days had a horrific offshore incident uh, where actually several people lost their lives. Um, so... Pemex's future, I think, is is not bright, but it's good. They bought the old Cheryl Dill Park refinery, which tells me they're looking to establish a beachhead in the U.S. to be able to uh, buy crude off the market, not necessarily from Mexico, buy crude off the market, refine it, distribute, and sell it in retail gas stations. Uh, that model of the refinery owner also owning the gas stations, um, we got away from that in the U.S. years ago. And I can see that it would be a good time to bring it back, mm -hmm. um, especially with the strong brand loyalty that Mexican people have to Pemex. So I think their future is good. I wouldn't say it's bright. Um, and the reason I say that it's not bright is Pemex itself. Pemex, because it's a nationalized oil company, struggles to operate in a free market environment like that, that's here in the U.S. Yeah, They're not used to having real competition. They're not used to having to be the low-cost leader. They're not used to having to drive efficiencies um, to make sure that everything runs very lean. And so they're going to struggle with that. But the brand loyalty is big. And like I said, I, I love that brand loyalty. So um, I, I think they'll be okay. I don't, I don't think they're going to kill it. I also don't think they're going to disappear. Hopefully that helps, uh, Patricia. All right. So the next one is from Anonymous, which is a director at a super major. Uh, I've been a listener for years and love the work that you're both doing. Also appreciate not only the factual reporting, but that you come back and you admit you made a mistake when it happens. I don't know of any other podcasts in this space that do the same. So bravo. I'd like uh, both of your opinions on why some of the super majors invested so much money, time and per personnel and public relations into divestifying from fossil fuels and letting the world know why they are, uh, were headed towards a renewable future. Then lately doing a 180 and stop investing in renewables and reinvesting into hydrocarbon business. As always, appreciate your insights. Easy answer, Anonymous. Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Profits. <laughs> so what happened is all the super majors, so uh, Total, BP, Shell, Chevron, Exxon, all saw the renewable future coming at them, and they decided to approach it in different ways. So number one, all of them looked at it, this is about a decade ago, and said, can we use this and actually make money from it? Can we actually make money from renewables? Forget the discussion about climate and renewables mm -hmm. versus hydrocarbons. Let's look at it as a product. Can we productize this and make money? Then they said, can we also use this to improve our public image? There was some greenwashing going on, uh, whether anybody wants to admit it at the super majors or not. So that was about a decade ago. Right around 2018, 2019, they came back and they re-looked at the renewable market 
they and they quit greenwashing and they were very serious about can we make money at this and so the american super majors bp and exxon basically said we don't think it's mature enough yet the renewable market so we're going to invest a little bit of money we're going to experiment we're going to experiment with things like uh, carbon capture capture and sequestration low carbon fuels low carbon aviation fuels um, making uh, fuels from algae and so they did they put money in that a little bit of money they experiment with it and they determined that the margins that they could make off renewables were less than they could make off their hydrocarbons business BP and Shell, however, did the same thing, but they invested more money in research and development because the culture is a little bit different in, in Europe on the other side of the Atlantic. And they decided that there was a market for it and they were they would be first to market, even though it wasn't mature yet, right? Then 2020 happened, um, which which was unexpected by the entire oil and gas industry, by the world, quite frankly, myself included. Um, and for the first time in history, both the... the production of hydrocarbons got shut down because of no no market and then the need for refined products got shut down because no market because the world was locked down the oil and gas industry when we go through these cycles where the prices of crude are very low and we quit producing because it doesn't make sense to produce anymore the downstream part of the industry booms because their raw feedstocks on fire and and you still pay the same price for tires even though it costs them less to make it well that didn't happen in 2020 so coming out of 2020 you saw two totally different business approaches exxon and chevron said you know what there's no money in this we know the world is in an energy shortage will continue to be an energy shortage the only solution is in hydrocarbons and that's our core competence so we do better than anybody else so we're going to invest all our money into conventional hydrocarbon production distribution refining bp and shell said you know what we think the culture of the world is changing, especially here in Europe. We're going to invest all our money and research and development dollars into renewables so that we can get ahead of our competitors in the U.S., uh, Exxon and Chevron, and we're going to show them how a real energy company runs. Go through time, and obviously Chevron and Exxon are right. They've pulled way far ahead. They have way more cash than BP and Shell. Um, their stock is doing better. Their uh, dividends are doing better. Um, they just smoked it. Now, could it have been different if something would have happened different in the past? Maybe. Um, but but that's what's happening. And you're seeing leadership change at BP and Shell um, because of this. Um, you're seeing them publicly come out and saying, basically, we made a mistake investing all this money in renewables. We're still going to invest some, but we're going to tone it back. And we're going to invest more money in a hydrocarbon business. And you saw Shell actually move its corporate headquarters. Shell had been in The Hague for close to 100 years they moved it to london let me tell you audience i'll make a prediction right now this will be my yearly predictions for the end of this year but you'll get in secret insight i think shells can move their corporate headquarters to the u.s i think europe the laws especially things like the windfall taxes are going to hurt shells business to the point that they have to move their headquarters to a place that helps their business and the u.s is the obvious choice that makes make. sense yeah so i would not be surprised that one of the things you can see come out of this is all of the super majors except BP and Total uh, will be headquartered here in the U.S. So let's see. All right. Uh, John Irving, production engineer at Hess, writes in, You two rock with your podcast, and your podcast is amazing. Easy to listen to, informative, funny, engaging, and insightful. No wonder you own the oil and gas podcast space. Rock. <laughs> Uh, you would think I am writing in with a nuts and bolts type of industry question or career advice, but I'm not. I want some podcast advice. I've never done a podcast, but I want to start my own. What would be your recommend, uh, recommendation for first steps, equipment, things to look out for, co-host, no co-host, monetize, or passion project? Video or no video, and whatever other advice w could you give me that would be greatly appreciated. And what does it take to have a podcast on the OGGN network? Thank you in advance for the help. Whoa. <laughs> We could do a whole show just on this one question. Yeah. You want to start or you want me to start? I'll, I'll let you start and I'll fill in. Okay. So um, first mistake a lot of podcasters make is they wait till everything's right to start the podcast. Throw it out the freaking window. Start your podcast even if it's on your cell phone. Your first 10 or 12 episodes are going to suck no matter how much 
money you spend on gear or practice, you got to get through it and get comfortable. Second thing, I would not make it a passion project. I would monetize it. Even if you, you're, you get a sponsor that's only giving you $10 a month for your podcast, it's going to contractually make you continue to produce the podcast. And consistency is key. Most podcasts fail around the seventh episode. If you go to iTunes, there's millions of podcasts that have failed. And actually, because I'm in this world, we do it for a living. I'm real aware of the research. So last month, so June of 2023, was one of the lowest number of new podcasts being released in the history of podcasting, right? Because everybody became a podcaster and they failed at it. And now the world's littered with failed podcasters. Well, not only that, it was time to go back to work. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, so get a sponsor, um, just start the podcast. Don't worry about getting everything right. Um, as far as gear, you do not need a two thousand dollar microphone. No, I have a, I have an actual list where because I, I I'm the one that uh, gets everybody their equipment and it's it's really it's I, we're using sixty dollar microphones right now. Yeah, so we're using Audio Technica two thousand fives. Our whole team uses this. Does it sound as good as a two thousand Sure microphone? No. Does it sound ninety eight percent as good? Yeah. Is it sixty dollars? Yeah. I think right. the most expensive part of our gear is our uh, Zoom H6, which is comes out to I don't know three to four hundred dollars, um, but it's quality. Um, host, co-host depends. What are you going to be talking about? Um, you know, what 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 is your content going to be? Um, I find it that it's good to have a co-host. What, what are your thoughts on that, Mark? So the advantage of having a co-host is it it frees up your workload a little bit so if your kids get sick if you go on vacation if your work gets busy you have somebody to keep the podcast going right however you have to coordinate with a co-host so um you know i do it both i have a solo show i have this where we have right. a co-host and i have another show sales and marketing we have a co-host um so it really depends i think it's kind of up to you um video or no video i i, I catch flack for this almost as much flack as i get for my views on climate change but most new podcasters now don't can't even comprehend not doing video for a podcast. Right, yeah. And the definition of a podcast, if you look it up in the dictionary, is literally an audio file that's hosted on a uh, podcasting server that is shared through an RSS feed. That's the definition of a podcast. There's no video in, in the, the definition of a podcast. The reason I like audio only is if a lot of you that are listening to this right now are listening to this while you're working out or commuting or washing dishes or walking the dog, you're you're listening to this and learning from Paige now while you're doing something else, and you cannot do that with video. Also, video is much more time in, um, to edit, right? And it's much more yeah. money invested in gear. Yeah, you can you can do a very good podcast with a three hundred dollars Zoom digital recorder and four eighty dollars Audio Technica mics. You cannot do a really good video unless you buy a decent camera, decent lights, decent microphones, right? right? And you're looking at several thousand dollars a year at the the minimum. Depends on your budget. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I would start with audio only. I would would not start with video. It adds a layer of complexity, a layer of cost, a layer of time from the production point of view. And the other thing, John, recording a podcast is actually not that hard. It's editing that's going to eat up all your time. Um, basically, if, if you get really good at it, I mean really good at it, for every one minute of final um, podcast that you have, it's going to take you three minutes to edit it. So if you if you multiply it out, you can see how much time you're spending editing. The other reason to hurry up and get a sponsor is to help pay for an editor so you get that workload off your back. I don't think anybody likes editing podcasts, even I, except maybe oh, our editors. I, I detested it. I detested it. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. Um, what does it take to have a podcast and OGG and network? Hit me up, dude. If you have a good idea uh, and it fits with our brand um, and it's something that we think we can build an audience, I, I'd love to talk to you. We we have um, we actually have a podcast that's coming up soon where the podcast owner basically just reached out to me. He bribed Paige and I with gumbo. Um, <laughs> but he approached us with the idea and it made sense. And now he's going to be a part of our network. So I'm, yeah. I'm open to having that conversation. Um, but John, just start. Just don't worry about gear or anything else. Just start. Uh, start producing content so that you can get good at it. Um, and then, if you want our list of gear, hit page up. I don't mind sharing our gear, gear list with the public. It's, it's not any type of trade. Yeah, it's secret. not on your Amazon wish list. Is yeah. It? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, if you really want to bring your podcast to OGGN, let me know. I'll, yeah, I'd yeah. Love to have hey, a just reach out to me. I'll hook you up. I train people. I train people on the on the side to help start their own podcast. So. All right. Okay, so the next one's from Catherine O'Donnell, regulatory specialist at Schlumberger. 
It's not summer jam anymore. I, I'm, I refuse. <laughs> Being to, facetious? Yeah, no, I refuse to call it that. Anyway, Paige, can you help break down BLM's conservation and landscape health rule? Do you think it will pass as is? And totally understand you're you not having time for a beauty blog. You don't strike me as one of those women with a ton of extra time that you see on uh, Instagram. And I prefer you and uh, more valuable kicking out episodes of Oil & Gas this week. Please keep it up. Okay, this is uh, this is something. All right, so I went to BLM's. I didn't have much time to prepare for this, but I've got notes. Um, so the proposed public lands rule is supposed to establish a framework to ensure health, healthy landscapes, abundant wildlife habitat, clean water, and a balanced decision making on public lands. Uh, the three uh, components of this proposed rule are protecting landscapes, restoring landscapes, and ensuring wise decision based off of science and data. Uh, to protect landscapes, they want to protect intact landscapes, designate uh, areas of critical environmental concern, and use uh, conservation leasing for restoration and mitigation. To restore landscapes, they identify priority landscapes, develop res uh, restoration plans, and perform mitigation and, again, the use of conservation leasing. They want to uh, ensure that the wise decision-making using science and data by consideration of the health of the lands and the waters, expanding health assessments beyond the grazing program to all BLM managed lands, and drive science-based decision-making by incorporating uh, assessment, inventory, and monitoring information. Um, so, just recently, S1435 and HR 3397, which are identical bills, were introduced to withdraw the rule in the Senate and the House, and tons of co-sponsors on each. Interesting. I know, I know. Uh, and after only, like I said, I only had a few hours to like try to deep dive in this because it's like a 99-page bill. Uh, our rule. Uh, I have a lot of questions. Uh, first, the the use of uh, conservation leasing. Who are they allowed to lease to? I actually know a little bit about that. It's Do you? Brought that up. Yeah. So think about when uh, we make a drive to say Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, and we cross over the Chafalaya Basin, uh, that big long bridge, and you see the levee when you first hit the basin, and then you cross over the swamp, and then you see the other levee which contains the Chafalaya Basin. They lease that to cattlemen to graze their cattle on, and the money, and they get money for that. And that money they use to go in to do remediation projects in other areas. Now, the problem with that, and people I have a degree in wildlife manager, so I'm not making this up. The problem with that is if this group is making money off leasing to cattle farmers, they're gonna want more forest or more grazing land. Right. More grazing yeah. land. So they tend to look the other way at anything that increases grazing land, which is not always the best thing for the environment. Right. And and what is the real intent of the leaseholder too? So yeah. there's that. Um, what do leaseholders get out of having a leasing in the first place? What are the consequences for non-compliance aside from suspension and terminations of lease? So, it, like, I, there's, like, I didn't see a monetary, like, you know, we you get inked and then you get fined and all this stuff when you are you screw up offshore. Um, and, and I know there's bonding requirements, but, like, I have so many questions. I mean, even the paleontologists are sketchy about the language used in the definitions of the section of the proposed rule, and uh, they have questions just like I do. Um, I, but I have read some places that, quote, this is a backdoor attempt to sell our public land to the highest bidder to achieve the goals of the 30 by 30 agenda to lock up our public lands, end quote, which is something Biden brought up in the beginning of his presidency, apparently. Um, regardless, I, I'm not really on board with this since BLM already is required to comply with plenty of their other laws and executive orders in place that uh, I mean that pr prioritize conservation on public lands and find it. A, well, it I also just find it unnecessary. Like they're stepping on the EPA's toes, right? And we don't need two separate organizations with two separate standards um, to be regulating things like what is considered um, um, pristine uh, environments, what is considered endangered species, you know that sort of stuff. We need one set of rules ruled by one government organization not that i think either one of them is the i right don't think one. those are i don't think those have jur i don't know that epa has that sort of Who has jurisdiction of endangered species isn't that epa uh i'm pretty sure it is it is 
But because it's public domain, I think it BLM regulates that. I'm yeah. not sure. Anyway, but anyway, that's that's the breakdown. I I don't I don't think it's necessary. I think it's a redundancy. I think it's over regulation. Good so. question, Catherine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so next one is from Matt Rogers, portfolio manager at Crown Castle. Mark and Page, longtime listener, first time writing in. What's your take on the oil and gas industry using private 5G networks? What is the business driver and what are the constraints? Please keep turning it to the right. That's a that's a whole question for Boy, can you. Can you get even more technical? <laughs> I'm not I'm joking, Matt, but not 100%. Um, okay. I'm trying to get this keep this at a high level. So the oil and gas industry is having to drive efficiencies like they've never had before for several reasons. One is more regulation. Think of the IRA bill. Um, one is the need to run leaner and safer operations. So an efficient operation is also a safer operations because we won't want anybody getting hurt. Um, and also the need to be able to respond quickly to any mistakes we made because of the chance of a lot of negative public perception, right? We have a spill or a leak or something blows up. So because of all of that, in combination with the fact that things like sensors and connectivity has gotten so cheap, we now as an industry can afford to put sensors on everything in the oil field. It doesn't cost a ton of money. Um, now, if you think about what the oil and gas industry does, we tend to operate in the middle of freaking nowhere. So that doesn't mean there's a cell tower close by or a fiber optic or a microwave mm-hmm. pop. So we need to take all these sensors and we need to connect them and somehow get the data back to some place, probably in the cloud, where people can do something with it, like do analytics and make it useful. Now, the old way of doing that is you would wire all these sensors together with cables. Well, that's expensive uh, because you got to pay for not only the cables, but the people. Mm-hmm. And then if some somebody runs a tractor over a cable somewhere, you got to send a crew out to repair that, right? Everybody that's listening probably has had that happen when their internet went down in their house because yep. some backhoe hit a telephone pole somewhere, right? So if you... If you connect all those sensors with a wireless connection, such as 5G, which is the same technology that's used on your cell phone, but the thing about using it with your cell phone is the carrier controls it, the carrier owns it, and you pay it. Well, if you're somebody like uh, Occidental or Chevron, you can build your own 5G network that's not connected to the public, that you own that, that you can have all your sensors talking wirelessly, so it's cheap and quick way to deploy all those sensors, and then you have some type of connectivity, whether that is uh, edge computing, so instead of all that data being sent back to the cloud, you only send the bits that you need, or you have fiber or a, a, you know, a microwave backhaul or whatever, you now can connect your own 5G network back to your headquarters, probably in, a, in the cloud somewhere, and do everything you want with all this data you're collecting out in the field all over the world. So... Same way if you're building a new refinery in the old days, and if you've ever been in a refinery, it's miles and miles of heavy equipment that has sensors and valves everywhere and all that stuff's wired. Well, if you build a new refinery, why would you spend all the time and money to wire that? Wouldn't you just put a, your private 5G network in the refinery so you have uh, the ability to talk to all those valves and all those sensors without having to worry about somebody cutting a cable somewhere? So that's the demand for private 5G networks. It's actually really huge. The problem is there's a disconnect between the people that make the 5G network hardware. So think of companies like Ericsson. The companies that can install and operate it, which tend to be the carriers, the AT&Ts and the Verizons of the world, right? But they have their own separate commercial interest in building the 5G network than the user. And then having to get the oil and gas industry to adopt to something new like a private 5G network. So it's hot right now. I'm seeing... I'm seeing it take off, but I think it's really, really going to take off in the next, say, five years. So I think we're in its infancy. I think another five years, I think about 2028 or so, it's going to be all over the place. So hopefully, Mark, that I'm sorry, Matt, that was helpful. All right. Uh, Jennifer McNabb, Director of Marketing at Pacific Gas and Electric, has a question. Wonderful podcast, always informa- uh, inf- informative. Man, I'm out of it today. Uh, thought-provoking, and you make me laugh out loud. Uh, you two make fun of California, and I don't blame you, as our state makes it easy to do. <laughs> uh, however, if somebody hired you to change California's public image to turn around the loss of jobs, companies, and tax revenue to other states, what would you do? And when is the time you would uh, will make it out to Cali? We'd love to meet you both in person. 
So, Jennifer, we don't have any plans to go to California anytime soon, but we do make it out there usually at least once a year. Um, beautiful state. I thought we had something later this year. Do we? I think so. We had a phone call about it the other day. Okay, so Jennifer, maybe we'll see you in a couple of months. We'll let you know. <laughs> I don't know. There's so much going on, but I think, yeah. Okay. Wait, you're, you're right. We are going to something. Yeah. A sidebar discussion, Jennifer. We'll reach out to you and let you know when we're going to be there. Now remember where, where we're going to be. Um, I don't want to talk about it. Cause yeah, it's a, we can't. It's yet. Hush, hush. Okay. Right. Um, what we do to change California's public image. So a lot of people would, would jump in and say, change all your politicians and change your uh, anti-business uh, rules and policies and get rid of your homeless and all that stuff. You got to remember, California is a blue state for a reason. Yeah. It's a blue state because the people that live there and work there want it to be a blue state. Um, um, is that always beneficial to the state and the people? No. Is it the culture of California? Yes. And as long as I can remember, it's always been the culture of California. Um, you know, California. The only won- Republican governor I remember is Arnie. Yeah, but he's when you think of him as a Republican, he's not staunch Republican. Right. He's kind of he just ran in, that in way. The, yeah, he just ran that way. Um, you no, know, California was the home of the of Hollywood, right? Right. A very liberal group of people, even the fifties and sixties. So you can't just change everything because then it wouldn't be California, and the people honestly wouldn't put up with it. So what would I do? Um, you have some politicians that, quite frankly, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish, but it's, it's obvious they're not trying to do things better for the state and the people. You need to vote them out of office. Um, you also need to change some of your policies. California basically has created a situation for the homeless, and, and it started out as the people in California wanted to do the right thing for the homeless. In their hearts, they were believing it the right way. But then it turned into a business. It's, it's turned into a business. So now there's no, there's not much of incentive in California for you to not want to be homeless. You can have a decent life as a homeless person. And let me tell you, a lot of people, including Paige and I, have been to California in the last five or six years. And it's a homeless scary. population is scary. We don't want to be there because of the homeless population. So you need to clean that up. Quit making it easy to be homeless and do like the other states and if somebody is homeless do what you can to help them but encourage them to get a job and put laws in place where they have not much of a choice but to some point become gainfully employed now if there you have mental issues or whatever totally different situation well also mark the cost of living there is horrendous that was my next thing i was to get to your cost of living there is driving that's what's driving people and companies out because it's so expensive and the reason it's so expensive is a lot of the tax dollars and you have some of the highest taxes in in Jeez, the u.s yeah. goes to the social programs that we are talking about Remember Ebonics, California? Remember when you decided that the entire school system was going to be able to talk whatever language they wanted to, and they were going to be able to teach whatever they wanted to? Um, you need to get rid of that. You need to get rid of all the social programs that um, in, that don't uh, penalize drug use. I mean hard drug use. I'm, I'm actually very okay with the legalization of marijuana. Um, you need to have politicians that understand business, not trying to make sure they get reelected. Um, and you need to do what some states like uh, Texas do, does in that our governor and our legislature has laws and policies and a culture of wanting to attract businesses to the state of Texas. Right. We give them tax breaks. Our governor personally calls their CEOs and negotiates deals. Think about that. If your governor. There are incentive. Yeah. If your governor and your legislation in California flipped around and instead of making it harder to do business in California, make it easier to do business and start it. I would love to see y'all compete with Texas. I would. I think it would be awesome if y'all would offer some of the t- same tax benefits, the same um, moving expenses, the same uh, chipping in to help construct office buildings that we do to, to attract California business to Texas. I'd love you to see you do the same thing. It would be better for you. It'd be better for your state better for your people and what's gonna happen in california is as people are leaving which by the way the number one state that people in business have left in the u.s is actually california they're bleeding revenue um at some point you're not gonna have a tax base to support all the social programs then they're gonna crash instead of being handled responsibly which you can do right now so i wouldn't change i wouldn't try to change a lot of stuff that has to do with california's politics i would change 
the stuff that you have under control to deal with your homeless population, the high cost of living and doing business there. Um, and then I would spend more time and money instead of worrying about social programs, actually trying to attract good businesses and good people back to the state of California. It's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it's a shame that it's gotten as bad as it has. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. I've never been so scared to walk on the street. And yeah. I mean, we were leaving to go to the airport to come to come back home. And there's a dude shooting up in front of Bloomingdale's. Yeah. Just and, a needle hanging out of his arm. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. And it's and that's common there. And Californians that have lived there for a while, it's common to you because you see it every day. That's not how the rest of the country works. No. And it's it's bothersome. Um, so that's what I would do. And it's interesting. She works for Pacific uh, Gas and Electric. Um that's when the companies have caught some grief in California because they're still using natural gas to generate electricity. Mm. Um, so I can see, Jennifer, why, why you're asking me this question. But hopefully that was, that was helpful to you. All right. Last one is from Josh Standards, uh, equity research f- for one of the large investment banks. Mark, you've talked about this b- before, but can you talk about the business strategy differences between ExxonMobil and Chevron versus BP and Shell, especially when it comes to renewable energy and GHG emissions? What do you think the business f- future will look like for these four companies moving forward, and how did your mixer go in Calgary? Absolutely love the show, guys. Mixer went phenomenal, other than the fact that we got rain. But even that was, was that was so hilarious. That was, was actually like hilarious. Kind of funny. Yeah, it's like the only place they had a hole in the the uh, canopy was right above you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Josh, if you work for one of the large investment banks, shouldn't you be the one giving me the answers to this question? <laughs> I, I say, and I'm sort of joking. I don't mind. Um, actually, I take it as a compliment. Um, I sort of answered this earlier. Somebody else asked a question that were similar. Um, the business strategy difference between ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, and Shell. ExxonMobil and Chevron have doubled down on hydrocarbons. Um, they're both aware of the negative public perception. They're both doing what they can. Um, to help counter that with education, uh, they could do more. Uh, ExxonMobil and Chevron, I, I've talked to both of your companies in your your senior marketing uh, and communication groups. Um, you really ought to come do a podcast with us, bottom line. But regardless of that, um, they're doubling down their hydrocarbon businesses. They're aware of the negative public perception. Um, they've quit funding research and development in parts of the renewable businesses that aren't going to go anywhere as far as making a profit. They're still funding some renewable businesses that they see uh, they can make a profit in the future. Um, because they've grown so much bigger than BP and Shell, as long as they don't screw up a BP and Shell are not going to catch up. Um, BP and Shell have realized they've made a mistake. They've had some change in management because of the change in mistake. They've publicly came out and said they're reinvesting in the hydrocarbon business. Shell, I think, is going to be okay. BP... Love you to death. Um, I would not be surprised in the next five years if you could get acquired um, by ExxonMobil or Chevron. And when I say acquired, they're not going to acquire all of BP. They're just going to acquire your best assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I got a feeling that if that happens, and I, I think it would be ExxonMobil that would acquire BP access. Once that happens, ExxonMobil is going to be so big, nobody's going to be able to come close to them, um, which is their, their, that's most of their history anyway. Um Shell, I think, could be okay. And I said this earlier, I would not be surprised if they moved their corporate headquarters here to the U.S. It is interesting. They have that Dutch mentality where they need consensus. And so everybody has to agree before they do anything. And they're learning that's not good for Shell. Mm. And so when they made their move from The Hague to London, that was not everybody agreed to it. It was enough people agreed to it. They did it. And I like that change in culture. We, we're going to need more of that. The other thing, Josh... As in the industry as a whole, forget Exxon, Chevron, and BP and everybody. Here in Europe, nobody wants to come work in the oil and gas industry. And, you know, we talked earlier, we had somebody wrote in that was a petroleum engineer student. There's not enough people going to school for petroleum engineering or geophysicists or geologists or, or anything oil and gas industry needs to hire to work. And yet in other countries, uh, Russia, um, India, Africa, there's a bunch of schools being set up for petroleum engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers all and they all want to come work in the oil and gas industry so if i extrapolate that out the culture of our industry globally is going to change the oil and gas industry culture has always been a western culture right because it was ruled by the exxons and the chevrons all the 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 babies of the standard oil Um, somewhere in my lifetime the majority of the workers i think will no longer be european or american or, or australian they'll be from africa and china and the middle east and 
um, you know, Russia, and this could change the culture of our industry. That's not a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's going to change. So hopefully that helps with whatever research, equity research. That's an interesting line of research. So I hope that helps you with whatever you're doing, Josh. Um, and if you don't know, in November of this year, I'll do my predictions for next year, which may also be useful to you. So stay tuned. All right. So this week in petroleum history, eh? This week in petroleum history, guess what? What? Tom Edison filled the first oil refinery fire. That's not a good thing, but it no, is No, it's not a good thing. So it was um, July 5th, 1900, 1900, Edison filmed Standard Oil Refinery in New Jersey. Uh, it was one of the first time that video was actually done of any oil and gas production. Oh, that's cool. Um, these were the largest storage tanks uh, in existence on Earth at that time. There were three of them at 40,000 barrels each, which uh, I don't want to laugh. That's so small compared now. Uh-huh. And they called it a fire. Um, within minutes, the company's fire department and neighboring tugboats came, started dumping water, put the fire out. Edison captured all of this on film. And guess what? What? It was deemed too controversial to show to the public. That's wild. It was a long time ago. Um, moment of silence. July 6, 1988, the Piper Alpha North Sea tragedy happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an explosion. Fire occurred. An Occidental Petroleum's platform, Piper Alpha, um, 167 uh, people unfortunately passed away of the 224 personnel. To this day, it remains one of the most deadly offshore disasters of the industry, but the industry learned a lot. What else? Um, oh, <laughs> first transcontinental motor convoy started in uh, 1919, started on the south lawn of the uh, White House. Um U.S. Army military vehicles been a cross-country trek from the White House to San Francisco. Dwight Eisenhower participated as an observer for the War Department during the truck train, which is what they called it. And the only reason they were able to make this journey is there was enough fuel stations between here and California. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who would have thought there was never enough gas stations in the U.S. to drive from one coast to another? Um, then, oh, and this is my last one. We'll end on this one. July 7th, 1935. Oil boom comes to Rodessa, Louisiana. Do you know where Rodessa is? No. I've never heard of Rodessa. Um, this is United Gas Public Service Company. It's in Caddo Parish. So it's up north of oh, yeah. Shreveport. Yeah. Uh, turned Caddo Parish into a boom town. Uh, they drilled three wells, all of which produced about 8,000 barrels a day from a depth of 6,000 feet, which 8,000 barrels a day back then was an enormous production. Right, yeah. So they had tents and cots. Um, and, and makeshift bars set up all over shotgun houses of sin. What was shotgun house of sin? <laughs> Pretty much I can guess what that is. So um, so that's today in petroleum history. All right. And I got the rig count and it's looking good. United States is at 680 up six. Canada's up uh, eight at 175. Internationally, we're up two at 967. And I am not going to talk about advertising with us. However, I will ask you to go follow on LinkedIn page. Juan is killing it over there. We're growing like crazy, getting some, uh, some good, useful contents going up. And if you follow us on LinkedIn, you notice that we become much more active. Um, I'd like to say that the company as a whole is really dived into LinkedIn. It's really our intern doing a really good job. Um, and then I mentioned earlier, if you want to leave a question for uh, this episode, First Friday Q&A, just go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. Find the place where it says ask a question. It's very noticeable. And leave your question there. And then if you want my monthly Oil and Gas Events newsletter for free, there's a link in the show notes for that. If you want myself or your experts to come to your anything and do everything from a keynote to a live podcast, let me know. Happy to share the details. Ready to get out of here? Yes. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.